Cheers. Um, I am almost a two-time graduate of Calvin we're College. Oh, you are? We're, pre we're preschool teachers. Okay. Yeah, no, no, this is not it. This is wrong. This is not it. Um, I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about uh, reading in your classroom and what types of activities you do and why you do it the way that you do it. Um, at the high school level in particular, we all just assume that the kids walk into our rooms and are functional readers. And we all know that that's not necessarily true, I'm, I'm assuming. Um, especially over the last couple of years as, you know, learning has been interrupted. Um, I'm finding with the 10th graders who walked into my room this year, there's been a lot more support that's been needed. Um, simply because they haven't had the support over the last couple of years that I, I think they really, really need. Um, and so then that falls on a, a history teacher who I quite honestly sometimes feel ill-equipped or ill-prepared in order to teach reading. Or maybe you're a math teacher and you're like, these kids, like, I, they can't even like read through this textbook effectively or story problems are becoming almost impossible. Um, so I want you right now just to kind of turn with the people who are near to you um, and discuss some sort of like a reading or a literacy activity that you've done in your room in the last week and a half or so. Go.
So this group over here, if you all would mention just like, I know that Becky Stamets is math middle school, but if you could say, I teach whatever, and just kind of go around here so I can, I can hear. Um, so I teach a ninth grade composition, so grammar writing. Okay. High school English, uh, all stuff. Okay. I teach middle school and high school. Okay. High school English. Okay. I just do seven and eight English. Uh, high school English. Same. High school English. Wow, a bunch of English teachers. <laughs> Becky, you and I. Um, I teach social studies, so my lens maybe will feel a little bit different to all of you English folks. Um, and I'll, I'll try to bring in some of those other thoughts. And Becky, I have some research for you too. But um, yeah, let me know if, I don't know. Whatever. I, I feel responsible as a teacher to teach them to continue how to read well and write well. Um, I know that some history teachers don't necessarily feel that way, but I have found that if I don't teach those skills, my class is a disaster. Um, and yeah, it's inherent. A lot of the things you guys are doing are things I'm doing too. Um, so yeah, there's not many of us, so interact with me, please. Uh, so C.S. Lewis says, those of us who have been true readers all our life seldom fully realize the enormous extension of our being which we owe to authors. We realize it best when we talk with an unliterary friend. He may be full of goodness and good sense, but he inhabits a tiny world. In it we should be suffocated. The man who is contented to be only himself and therefore less self is in prison. My own eyes are not enough for me. I will see through those of others. Reality even seen through the eyes of many, is not enough. I will see what others have invented. And I think you are all here because we know that this is how we feel about reading in a lot of ways, right? This is, this is the gateway to the world. Um, to our students in particular, I think reading to them is captions on Instagram and, I don't know, 140 characters on Twitter sometimes. Uh, an English teacher in our high school the other day, they're starting a, they're going to read a nonfiction novel, and as part of the prep for that, she had asked the students to fill out a survey of how much reading per week do you think you get from your classes, meaning like how many pages of text do you think you're reading, um, and most of the kids reported 10 to 20 pages of reading each week which would mean I'm failing, the science teacher's failing, the math teacher's failing. I, I would argue, like, that's, that's not enough, especially when they're getting all of their information from these tiny little bite-sized chunks. Um, or videos, right? Videos. They're always like, well, is there a video for this? Well, actually, we need to read, right? Um, so I'm wondering then, going from there, you are all expert readers, um, in your in your disciplines and I would love to know what was kind of a snapshot of what each of your groups just talked about I don't know Go ahead. what have you been working on lately you spoke about uh, having kids read on their own first and then get in groups of two or three to go deeper handle some questions on the text maybe a way to get through a Segment of analysis. Yeah, yeah. We kind of talked about like doing some base reading, whether it's like poetry or some other type, and then going further and creating like a, a chart or something to show the understanding. Yeah. I think you're going to talk about because we're like kind of English teachers. Well, we did, um, how to do like outside reading, like manuals, instructions, and uh. those kind of things. talking about sometimes reading aloud in class and modeling for students. Here's how you, you know, having that internal dialogue, the external dialogue done by the teacher so that they see, okay, this is how I read this, this is how I read fiction, this is how I read nonfiction, this is how I interact with it. Because I think a, a lot of times we assume that students already know all these skills. Yeah, the, there's a portion that do, but we have responsibility for the portion that doesn't. Yeah. And sometimes modeling really is an effective tool. Yeah. Um, 
I, you're leaning in really well, that's what I'm just going to talk about. So, um, so this study here uh, looked at, like it says, history, math, and chemistry. And what they did was they had college professors and grad students read uh, source material from those three disciplines and like articulate what they were thinking about as they looked at the text and how they went through the text. Um, and they did this with, I think, close to a thousand different people all over the country. Um, so like 300 history, 300 math, 300 chemistry. Uh, and what they found is that people in those disciplines read completely different. So you as English teachers teaching students to read novels like fit into a totally different category here. Um, this study was looking at just within disciplines that aren't necessarily considered like literacy disciplines, what, what are these people doing when they read text? Because they're all reading text. But what happens is we do it totally different. At the secondary level, you start to see that difference begin to emerge. And oftentimes, you can sort out, like, this kid in math can't figure out story problems because they've never actually been taught to read for math. This kid is struggling in chemistry because they can't tackle how the textbook is laid out, and that doesn't make sense to them because no one's ever taught them how to read that. Um, no one has ever taught them how to work through primary source material in a history class, and so they don't know how to tackle that. Um, but the teacher in the classroom, all of you, are considered expert readers in your field. And so you have a thought process that you're going through that feels extremely natural to you and looks really weird to the students. So just like you said, you, you have to articulate, here's what I'm thinking about and here's what I'm going through, and they have to hear that process over and over in order to continue to kind of embed that. Um, what they found with chemistry and math in particular was that uh, the people who were reading the, the chemistry text, okay, um, in general it was uh, some sort of a paper that a colleague had published, was that the chemistry professors were really concerned about if they had background knowledge in that or not. And if they had background knowledge, they read it very differently than if they did. Okay? If they didn't have background knowledge, they were, they were reading to learn um, and just kind of soaking in new information. If they um, didn't have background, wait, I don't remember what I said, the other way. If they did have background knowledge, then they were analyzing and critiquing what was going on. Um, uh, they were always, always, always looking for new information, okay, chemistry. They, that's what they were looking for constantly was what's new in here that I need to, I need to know, I need to pull out. Um, and the text itself is always about things in process. So if you think about chemistry in general, right, it's about the process of getting things to change essentially. And the way that their brain was working when they were reading was breaking that down. Um, in math, when they were reading uh, like math papers, but then even just like looking at student work and things, they were always looking for definitions, axioms, theorems, problems. They were seeking placeholder relationships and looking for those connections between various variables. Um, they were seeking instantiation, or essentially instances of theorems working. So they're looking for patterns, essentially. They're looking for patterns, um, which when I look at this, this doesn't make any sense to me because I read for history. When you guys look at this, I would assume that most of you are like, huh, I don't know. Mrs. Stamps, does that feel like you? <laughs> yeah. So, like, this is something that happens naturally as we continue to go deeper in our field, and you just kind of learn it through osmosis, but it can be a huge barrier for students in your classroom if you're not articulating these things. Um, so that brings us to... Like, why, why do we teach this? Well, I hope I'm starting to make my point. Um, for history in particular, uh, and then in this field, one of the leading experts is a guy named Tim, Tim Shanahan. And if you Google him right now, he, on his website, has all kinds of PowerPoints, presentations of, like, various things that he's done. Um, he tends to work with his wife. So you see Shanahan and Shanahan. It's cute nice. They work together. Um, but essentially, like, I'm, like I just said, uh, like these experts do all kinds of very specific things, and particularly in history, 
Um, historians look for sourcing, contextualization, and corroboration. Um, historians critiqued absolutely everything that they were reading. They never read it at face value and just say, huh, that was nice. They're always critiquing it, um, which is very different than like what we just talked about with chemistry or with math. Um, probably very different than reading through Lord of the Flies, like I heard someone say. Um, I would never read Lord of the Flies that way. I would read it looking for different things, um, as you English people know. Um, the historians also, in particular, spent more time rereading things in the text than any other discipline, meaning they didn't just read it once, they read it like three or four times. So that feels different, too, because if I'm reading a novel, I'm probably not going to read it three times, right, over the two weeks we're reading it as a group. Um, and so all of these ideas that I found were very much supported by different angles and approaches as I was, as I was doing this research. Um, so in college, I'm assuming you all had to go through some sort of a content area literacy class or you had to take that literacy class in order to re-up your, um, your teaching certificate at some point. And that class in general is trying to teach you kind of the bottom two tiers of this this pyramid, this is where the idea of all teachers teach reading comes from. Um, so it's based on comprehension and fluency. Okay, we want kids to be able to read out loud effectively. We want them to understand text that they're reading. Um, a lot of general techniques, what would work in my history classroom probably would work in your English classroom, would honestly work in Becky's math classroom. Um, we're reading for content, we're looking for information. Okay. Um, you're looking for new information, oftentimes, in this type of reading. Um, and it's often, like, content area literacy, too, is used for remedial purposes, essentially meaning, like, you're not, you're not going to give the class the most difficult text that you can find. You're going to give the class the text that's going to serve your purpose to push new information at them, essentially. Okay? Um, which, none of this is bad, okay, but this is kind of what, as secondary teachers, this is often the message that we receive um, and things that we're taught. So, uh, like, your goal then is just to kind of read efficiently to gain information. So kids who read quickly and can find the main point are rewarded in this style of reading, okay? Um, this is the SAT. If you can read quickly and find the main point, you will be rewarded. Um, and so, in a lot of ways, this is as high as the educational system wants us to push. But we all know, if you love English and you love teaching literature, this is kind of a boring class. Right? I love history, and this is a boring class. Like, this is not where I want my kids to top out, even in 10th grade. I, I want to be able to discuss things. And if we're just reading to gain new information, then that's all we're doing. Um, now, you have to start here, because if you don't start here, you'll never get to the top. Okay, so the top is kind of what we're, we're aiming at. We're aiming for them to use all parts of their intelligence and all parts of their brain as they're reading. Um, and so disciplinary literacy, then, is critical thinking. I'm not just taking in new information, but now I'm thinking about it. And I'm saying, why? How? What about? And asking questions as I read. Um, these are very specific techniques that are going to be specific to the field that you're in. Um, you are going to analyze content. This is for the whole class. This is how you take a text and turn it into a class discussion. Like, that, that's what it is. Um, and ultimately, like it says at the bottom, this restores agency to the reader. This ensures that there isn't one right way to do this. Okay? I can have all of my students read the Declaration of Independence, and we can talk about Thomas Jefferson, and we can talk about the Founding Fathers, and I can ask an open-ended question aimed at critical thinking as a historian, and I can have multiple opinions emerge in the classroom. That's what I want as a teacher. Okay? Or I hope you want. 
Um, so disciplinary knowledge, or knowledge of how information is created, shared, and evaluated, as well, as well as awareness of the nature of conceptual lenses employed by disciplinary experts, and the implications of these epistemological tools, is essential to understanding and learning in a discipline, and that teaching should foster such disciplinary sensitivity and practice. So, that's a mouthful. But, if I want my students to love history, they are going to have to learn how to love analyzing primary sources. Even if they don't love the actual reading itself, the knowledge that they're getting from it and the questions that they're being asked and the ways that they internalize it are the thing that brings it to life. Right? We can read Lord of the Flies and sit there, and I can make it as fun as I can and bring a conch shell in and, you know, act things out. But if these kids don't see how this was all put together and why it is and what was the author's purpose, what are they commenting on, you know, morality questions, whatever it is, like, that sensitivity to the discipline itself and that appreciation for whatever text you're reading just is not going to be there. Um, I, this is a weird example, but I took AP Calculus in high school and that teacher was incredibly good at helping me love math because of how they taught me to look through that textbook and to look through the things that were going on in like the literacy value of learning how things fit together and the patterns and the parallels and how passionate they were about it made me actually like math for a year. And I was happy to go to calculus class. And I am not the type of person who loved going to math class. I never hated it, but it wasn't my fave. Um, but this makes a huge difference. The expert reader showing me the passion for how to engage in the text changed everything. Um, so, uh, for historians in particular, um, or something that I'm very passionate about, and a lot of you probably could utilize some of this in your room, um, is historians tend to look for these three things, sourcing, contextualization, and corroboration. Um, so, sourcing, basically looking at who wrote this, and what does that maybe tell me about what's going on. Um, contextualization, so knowing the, histor the historical background of what was going on. Um, at that time period and kind of placing it within within the time. Um, reading Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe matters a whole lot more if the kids understand a lot of the cultural issues that were going on at that time. If you read it in isolation, it's a nice piece of text, but it doesn't feel quite right. You add to that that she's a female writing at that time, and all of a sudden there's gravity there. There's weight. Um, and then corroboration. Uh, they have to read more than one text. They have to. They have to understand, is this part of the norm, or is this part of kind of something that doesn't fit into the norm? So if we're talking about media literacy today, and fake news and whatever, like, you read that one source and it's the only source telling you that, is that true? And that's, I think, any, that's a lesson any of us can take away. Um, so, Teaching, essentially in the model of content area literacy, misses how historians think about this. Content area literacy will miss how you each teach in your own disciplines. Um, and it, like I said, it makes class boring. It makes the class a lot less interesting. Um, what's really interesting is uh, the research was a little divided on um, common core like implications in this. Um, so I read a couple of papers that were pretty clear that they thought that um, the Common Core really helped teach this uh, for a variety of reasons because it was pushing students to like higher levels of understanding um, and significant shifts occurred when that was put in place. Um, and then I read a couple of other passages, uh, a couple of other articles that were um, really clear that because informational text just kind of lumps together speeches, article on gravity, and a recipe as all being the same type of thing, that this was actually really harmful. Um, and like I said earlier, we've got our friend, the SAT, which, I don't know, in high school,
Well, this matters to students. And they break it down. They get an evidence-based reading and writing score, for those of you who have looked at this data. Um, and then they just get an overall reading score within that. And then they get an analysis in history and social studies score and an analysis in science score. Um, if you look at the questions being asked to the students in the SAT on their writing segments, they are, for the most part, this content area literacy. What's really, really fascinating, because they're just, they're measuring skills, essentially. What's really, really fascinating is the students who read like a historian, the historical text, the students who read like a scientist, the science text, the students who read like an English major, the literature text, tend to score much, much higher. So teaching disciplinary literacy is not a waste. It, it's not. Um, and you can tell the students this. This is why I'm doing this in history class today. It will help you on the SAT. It's amazing how they're all like, okay. Right? And they just calm down and they're like, all right, teach me. Because that test matters so much to them, unfortunately. Um, but there's a lot of research out there that the kids who learn, at least in history, sourcing, contextualization, and corroboration tend to score much better. Those questions don't look quite as foreign or as scary to them. Um, same in science. Same in science. Um, so know that this type of work is not, is not in vain and not something that you should shy away from. Um, a couple of things, like, at least for me, okay, when I think about in my classroom disciplinary literacy and I want to teach my kids to read like a historian, there are struggles that come up. There are struggles that you all face. How much of this book do I read in class? How much do I assign as homework? Can I bring in this outside article, this outside perspective? Um, you know, how many problems can we get through? How fast can we go? Um, what happens if the kids don't see the pattern in the, in the formulas that we're working on this week? Um, and there's struggles in all of that. So, at least for me, um, teaching kids to read like historians, but I think you can kind of put in any discipline here. Um, secondary students are most often asked to analyze, and their brains don't have access to enough, of, enough power in order to do that effectively, especially because we as teachers don't tend to front load some of that understanding or help them understand first before we ask them to analyze. Um, so for example, when you, ask, when you ask students to read a text, how much of that is you asking them to repeat back to you either like the synopsis of the chapter or are you going straight to questions like of morality or ethics or I don't know, something more deep, something that would ask them to analyze. Where are you starting them? Because we as teachers, I think, sometimes assume, well, I gave them a paragraph. They should be able to understand that. Let's analyze it. It's like, no, we're actually going to have to spend 30 seconds and double check that they understand what they were reading in order to analyze. Um, in history in particular, there's often a lack of historical context or background knowledge. Um, so students are unable to see the way that the text fits into history. They see it as very isolated. Um, when students learn uh, functions and things, they see them as all isolated. They don't see them together as patterns. Um, I think, I don't know, reading any bit of literature, you need historical background in order to make sure that you understand what's going on. Kids don't see that. Um, they see the world pretty black and white or dualistic, and so that tends to prohibit understanding. They don't see nuance like we see nuance. Um, and part of it is as their little brains are developing, that prefrontal cortex isn't there. And they like are physically incapable of seeing anything that isn't black and white. You have to wait until their brains develop. But you can still help them analyze and you can still help them see the gray area. But they need the expert reader in order to do that. They won't see the gray area on their own. Um, and yeah, at least in history, Students tend to just think that history is just collecting facts and not much else. Um, for some kids, reading in an English class is just reading the pages and coming to class the next day saying, yeah, I read the 10 pages that you assigned. Check the box. And so 
they see these things as very isolated and not together as a whole. Um, just a disclaimer about reading text online. Uh, it's, it's really, really hard for students to read text online. Uh, they essentially can't apply skills that we're teaching them when they see it on a screen. Um, there's been some research, I can't necessarily cite it because I don't know where it came from, but I remember reading it. When students do things in their computer, it, there's like a weird disconnect where it's in my computer and it's not in my head. Um, same reason why writing hand notes like utilizes more of your brain, you tend to retain. It's the same thing with reading. When they read text on the computer, they don't tend to internalize it or understand it as deeply. And they also will not apply the skills that you're asking them to use if they're reading it online. So figure out what you want to print is what I would say. Okay, try to get them those, those hard copies as often as you can. Um, and then I don't know where you guys are at on this continuum, but uh, textbooks tend to have strengths and weaknesses, as we all know. Um, at least in history, textbooks tend to be overwhelmingly neutral, boring, um, and very Eurocentric. They're only bringing in one perspective. Um, they're tertiary sources, which makes them oftentimes unreliable. Um, and they just present history as like this, uh, I don't know, amorphous blob of the past. Um, and then uh, in the positives, right, it is neutral and unbiased oftentimes, or we'd like to think of it that way, um, even if it is Eurocentric. And they are written with grade level appropriate language. And that's, that's really important too. Um, so I don't know if you have like literature textbooks that you're reading. I'm assuming you, you use a math textbook. Um, but these can be issues with textbooks that you just need to be aware of. Don't rely on the textbook as the, the gospel truth because it's not going to be. Um, it's, it's going to be ineffective. Um, so a couple of things. What do we do then? Because to me, reading a three-page speech is not a big deal. To students, that could take a whole 45-minute class period. And that's horrible because you're like, ugh, as a teacher, I don't know if I can do that. Okay, this is where you as the expert reader come in and say, how do I do this then? Because if I still want to teach them these skills, but we don't have the time, which time is our enemy, um, number one, use shorter texts. As the expert reader, pull out that best part. Piece together pieces of, pieces of it and give the students this, you know, abridged version of it um, that helps you as a historian, as an English major, get them to the place where you need to get them. Um, edit texts so that they have less complicated language. Replace words, okay? Um, go in and, you know, edit out some of that tough vocab. Maybe intentionally leave in a few so that they have to kind of work through that. But, but edit the text. Um, have the text read to the students to develop fluency. Okay? Them hearing you read the text out loud to them can be one of the most powerful tools that you have. They hear how you read it, your tone of voice as you read it, and that makes a huge difference. Not to mention as children, they were always read to. And at some point, we stop reading to kids. Okay. High school students still, they love when Mrs. Boonder says, it's going to be story time today. I'm like, oh, good. Right? And it's just like, I just want you to listen. Okay, this is beautiful text. Let's just listen. Um, Preload ideas with pictures as often as you can. Okay? Um, or maybe 30 seconds of a video. If you can preload an idea and have a picture in their head of kind of what this is about before you start, that's the best thing you can do. Um, I have my students read part of the Communist Manifesto when we're studying uh, the Cold War. You have to preload that with pictures. So I give them a diagram of like, here's what Marx is arguing, and then as we read through part of it, which I've shortened and edited, I say, okay, now we're on this part of the diagram, now we're on this part of the diagram. Okay, go through it with them. Um, 
Text does not always need to be words, too. Um, so don't, don't get stuck in the trap of, we're just going to read this today. Um, a little bit of music, okay? Looking at some sort of an artifact, a, a picture, an audio speech, um, are, are just as powerful. And oftentimes will kind of help you switch up class, especially if you're reading through a book. Um, together as a class, so they're in book clubs. Um, divide it up, give them some different text. Um, and then uh, they need to, like I said earlier, at least in history, I read things multiple times as a historian. That comes natural to me. So in my classroom, they need to read it multiple times. So I oftentimes will give them a paragraph, and I say, read it through, okay? Um, and their first time is we're just trying to figure out what are they saying. Okay, once we know what they're saying, then we're going to read it again. Why are they saying this? And then we're going to read it again. How are they saying it? And going through that process helps students kind of break down those pieces and gives them the brain power in order to actually engage with the text in a way that will help foster conversation and help them see some of that nuance. Um, you have to slow it down. Um, so, a couple of lesson ideas. Um, I use graphic organizers all the time um, in my class. And like I said, if we're reading a small bit of text, okay, I'm saying, what is it saying? Why are they saying this? How are they saying this? Um, and breaking it apart like that. Um, it's really simple. It allows you as a teacher to kind of uh, halt them before they get too deep into a text and they realize they have no idea what they're doing. Um, I know this seems really simple and straightforward, but this is, I think, something that we forget a lot of the time, um, at least in my experience. Uh, for history, like I have to keep in mind the sourcing, contextualization, and corroboration. Um, I have to preload things. I have to give them alternate perspectives in order for them to understand why I'm having them read what they're reading. Um, for you English folks, I don't know what that looks like exactly. But I'm assuming you do something similar in some ways, yeah. Um, <coughs> uh, sometimes the best thing that you can do is to give students access to lots of different texts with a big overarching question and ask them to come to conclusions. Um, I don't know if you have found in your classes, but students are really, really good right now at giving these claims and having no evidence for them. They see it modeled in the news, they see it modeled all over the place, and so they just think, if I state this opinion, that's my opinion, and you don't have to question me on it. It's like, no, actually, why are you saying that? Um, so doing something like this uh, forces students to go back and find the evidence. Um, so, I don't know, going back to your Lord of the Flies, because I heard you talking about it. Um, if you were to ask them a question about, like, what was the relationship that Piggy had with the rest of the group. Okay? You can use this model of you know, preloading some vocabulary that you want them to use in their answer. Okay? Give them like 10 paragraphs from the book where they have to walk around the room even physically um, and then ask them to answer the question. Now that you have seen the clear evidence, what are you doing? Um, and this, this can be a highly effective way then for them to critique. Because one, as a teacher, you're helping them find the things within the text that you see naturally that they probably aren't. Two, they're reading shorter pieces of text, so it doesn't feel overly overwhelming. It's social. But then when, when push comes to shove at the end, okay, they're answering that question and, and they have to analyze it. They have to be critical because there's a lot of different ways you can pull that text together. Um, let's see, I'm going to skip that one. So long-term implications, at least in my research of reading like a historian, and this is true across the board, um, that first paper that I showed you, uh, they, they came to similar conclusions. Um, essentially, this is like, this is how we create citizens. This is how we create reformed thinkers. You have, to, you have to help the students see what you're doing because you see the world 
in such a beautiful way when you look at these texts and the students don't necessarily see this. Um, so like it says here, in a world with increasing amount of information available which is not grounded in truth, students need to know how to sort, select, and understand why some text is not accurate or trustworthy. They, like, we have to do this. If we stop at that content area literacy, we are shortchanging them. Um, and I, I feel extremely passionate about this, especially as a social studies teacher. I want my students to engage in the world in really, really powerful ways, and it's, it's a struggle sometimes to help them see that. Um, I want them to read about characters that they're seeing in history and be able to critique them in ways that are really healthy and helpful, um, and not just take it at face value and assume that everything was honky-dory. Um, this can be a little bit scary, especially for some parents, because these people we hold on pedestals maybe shouldn't be held on pedestals in some ways. Um, and that's another really good conversation to have about analysis and critical thinking. Um, I, I, I don't know, I think in math, if the students don't understand the patterns, they're going to accept data without understanding why the data is the way that it is. Um, I mean, I, COVID has proved that. People don't understand how to read data. They don't know how to critically analyze it. So as a mathematician, like, you have a responsibility. Um, it's, I, I, I just feel really, really passionate that we need to be doing this. Um, so, final thoughts, and then I'll just open it up for a little bit of discussion. Uh, the biggest takeaway that I have here is to commit to reading in class with your students so that you can model the reading. At this point, I, I give notes, or I like lecture, I guess, as homework. I record myself going through slides, or I record myself talking about a historical event, and that's their homework. And we read in class. Because I want as much control over that situation as I can possibly have. I want to make sure that they see how I'm reading, and that I'm guiding them through it, that they're reading it, that they're doing it. Like, I, I want that in my classroom. That's a priority that I've placed in my classroom. So I figure out how to do other things around that, knowing that in class today, we are going to read through this two-page speech by whoever. We're going to be reading it three times, and it might take some of the class, like most of the class. But we're going to read it in class. Um, so that would, I don't know, that's the biggest thing. They have to see how you're reading. Um, so, control where that reading is occurring. Uh, does anyone have any questions, thoughts, things where you're like, ooh, I think I'm already doing this in my room? Did you talk about putting ten texts spread around the room, kind of almost like geology, when you go look at a rock on like a lab? Yeah. Could you describe what that yep. class hour looks like a little bit? Like? Sure. Um, so I love to use this model in my classroom, and I think you can do it with just about any topic. Um, I always preload a little bit of information, so in particular in history we look at maybe a political cartoon or something that gets the students thinking in this way. Um, I have selected almost like a, a DBQ or a document-based question type thing. I've selected ten very specific texts, and they go around the room. Um, there's a big question of the day. I time them, and so they move in groups around the room. They're physically up. They're moving. Um, after they read four or five of those texts, they have to go back to their table group and kind of corroborate that evidence or look at what is this saying, what is this saying, what do they have in common, what do they not have in common, um, before they get back up and kind of complete the cycle. Not all of the texts on the wall are paragraphs of reading. Some of them are more pictures. Um, some of them are, you know, diagrams or data. Um, as a historian, write graphs and charts about whatever. Um, and when they get to the end of that hour, then as, as a table group usually, I have them come to whatever conclusion they think is going to answer that question for the day. Um, we have 73, 73 minute classes, I think. Um, and that activity will take a full class. Does that help a little bit? I have 
most often do that in a block schedule day. I have done it um, on Fridays. We have shorter classes. They're like 42 minutes or something. And I have done it where they do um, like four of the readings in class, four of the tougher readings in class. And then I send them home with like three more things to investigate and add to their evidence pile. Um, that would be an instance where like we've modeled how to do this, so now sending you home to do it three more times doesn't feel invasive um, or overwhelming to the students. So their homework ends up being add, and we put 10 things on the wall. You go come back tomorrow or the next two days with three more. Yeah. teachers doing this the other week they were doing poetry and looking at imagery and poetry and so she found six different poems that go through like really nice imagery and so the students were looking for the same skill as they walked around the room um, and the end goal was to add imagery to their own poetry so after they saw the examples around the room then they went in like poem four did this really well, and I tried to channel that in my own poem. Um, so even using it in that way, where you're you're thinking like, what did I see? How can I apply it? How can I critique that? You know, poem one didn't do it as well, so I'm not going to use that one or whatever. But that helped her, and I don't know about you. That's better than as a full class going through six poems together. I mean, sometimes maybe it's necessary, but whew, you'll lose some of them. Or reading to the kids for 72 minutes. Oh, yeah, my word. Yeah, that's painful too. Any other questions or things that you're thinking about in your own classes? Can you think of any graphic organizers? that you use that are helping them like first seek some understanding and then go to the critical analysis because essentially what you're doing is you're asking them to hang out in the bottom of blooms for a little while right and then push to the top of blooms taxonomy is that something that you feel like you naturally do or do you hang out at the bottom do you go right to the top without the bottom One model I like is the QAR method. Oh, yeah. Where they, you have like the right there questions that are just answered right in the text. Then you've got a couple more think and search questions. And then you have some that the students really need to make more inferences about the text to be able to answer them. Mm -hmm. yeah. That one is, that's one I use. Yeah. That's definitely pushing you toward disciplinary literacy and less. Um, my pyramids. Yeah. That's pushing you out of just this. Right? Our goal is to get them out of here. Um, what do you do with a kid who's reading like two or three grade levels below what you're at? Any strategies that have worked effectively? Yeah. One thing our school just started this year is um, Learning Ally. It's an audiobook okay. subscription. And so some of those kids um, listening to it as they're reading along can help you know, understand the word. They might recognize what they heard it, but I'm actually reading it. And so um, our school has school wide done a subscription, and you can pretty much find any source on there. Yeah. So it's been a, been a good starting point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, last year, or the last couple of years in the pandemic, our school had a subscription to VoiceThread. So I could put a text on there and read it out loud to the students and highlight and talk them through what I was doing and then send that home as homework. Like, here's your reading, but go, like, follow along with me so they were still getting it. Um, not necessarily easy, but one way to do that in your own classroom is to have the kids read out loud to one another. It's like this cacophony of noise, and they get used to it. But 
Each of you is going to read one paragraph out loud to the others. When you're reading, your only job is to read. The other two are annotating for something specific. And it forces them at the end of the paragraph then to talk to the person who just read and said, here's the main idea. The author's saying something weird here. We don't know what this word means. And they naturally will start to do some of those things that you wish for. Um, and it's as simple as making them read out loud in the classroom. But when they're all reading out loud, then no one can hear you reading out loud. So it takes some of the scariness out of it. Any other thoughts? Since you mentioned annotation, I'm not sure if this really counts as a graphic organizer, but it's something I've started using is a, a method called left-right annotation. Okay. I like to get my students to, to read and mark stuff up. Um, so the way that it works is just anytime you get them on a page, you have them draw kind of like a line, real or imaginary, down the middle. And then as they read, they highlight and comment on the left side, more just summary. What do you think that the, mm. the author is saying? So they can identify a big point and put in your own words. And then we usually try to read it again. And on the right side, now make your own thoughts and connections. Um, and usually I use that to lead into bigger kind of discussion questions like, hey, then turn to your neighbor and tell them what you think. They've had a chance to summarize, and now they've had a chance to try to start doing some analysis for themselves. Yeah, and they've read it twice, probably at that point. Yep. I do something similar to that as uh, the Cornell notes. So they've got key ideas on the left, their notes are direct quotes in the center, and then their responses on the right, and then the summary of what they're reading on the bottom. Uh, and I kind of model that with my students too. While we're reading, if we're doing a uh, read aloud, I'll pause them intermittently to do a summary of what they just read, uh, and then make a prediction or something like that of what's going to happen next. Even if it's you know not like a huge reveal in the text, but like just what do you think is going to happen next using your inferential skills now that we have some comprehension. Uh, so we'll just pause intermittently. I'll just have them taking notes and whatnot. And that seems to help uh, not just with the, the comprehension, but also with their critical thinking too, because they're thinking through the text. You know. Yep what you want. Yeah. Alright, well, I hope something was helpful. But, I'm done. So, five minutes